This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Hunting in Venice. Hercule Poirot, I've found something. I've looked at it from every which way. I am the smartest person I ever met, and I can't figure it out, so I came to the second. You are up to something, my friend. I've seen a million of these so-called psychics, each one a fake. I do not believe in psychics. Come with me to a seance. Spot the con I can't. Detective, you are here to discredit me, but I can talk to the dead. All I have to hear my daughter's voice. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. Listening. listening to the trailer for A Haunting in Venice, and the story is as follows. In post-World War II Venice, Hercule Poirot, now retired and living in his own exile, reluctantly attends a seance. But when one of the guests is murdered, it is up to the former detective to once again uncover the killer. The film is starring Kenneth Branagh, Tina Fey, Michelle Yeoh, Jamie Dornan, Kelly Riley, Camille Cotton, Jude Hill, and Ricardo Scamarcio. It is directed by Kenneth Branagh and written by Michael Green. And here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Giovanni Lago. Hello. And Brandon Hodges. Hello there. Tonight, we are all podcasters. (laughs) (laughs) One of you is a negative review. (laughs) (laughs) All right, third film for Kenneth Branagh, adapting Agatha Christie here, following Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. A Haunting in Venice takes a different genre twist here, incorporating horror into its story, loosely based on the Agatha Christie novel Halloween Party. And I got to admit, when the marketing first popped up for this, two things ran through my mind. One, I don't care. I did not like the previous two Kenneth Branagh, Hercule Poirot adventures. And... The other thing was, I love that the marketing was doing everything it could to hide the fact that this was another Kenneth Branagh Hercule Poirot adventure. It almost seemed like it was a totally different type of movie. It seemed like people were watching a trailer for a horror film that just so happened to have this character in it. And because of the production delays of Death on the Nile, that came out fairly recently, just last year, in fact. So a little bit of fatigue started to kind of like set in for me and thinking, oh man, I really don't need this. I really don't want this. I despise Death on the Nile so, so much. 
Whereas I thought Murder on the Orient Express was just fine. So me heading into A Haunting in Venice, especially after it did not get a world premiere at the Venice International Film Festival, which considering its release date seemed like a no-brainer for this type of film. I just thought, oh my God, it must be terrible. It must be awful. Was it? That's what we're going to answer here. So let's start off first with Giovanni Lago. Giovanni, what did you think of A Haunting in Venice? So my previous relationship with the first two, I remember seeing Murder in the Orient Express and I thought it was simply fine. And then I was like, you know what, I'll see another. And then Death in the Nile came and I actually was really dialed into like the first 20 minutes or so, like the whole club sequence and like Perot's like wartime flashbacks. I was like, wow, this actually might be good. And then the rest of the movie kept going and progressively got really bad. (laughs) And I was just not at all dialed into it. The third film coming into it, I really didn't have any expectations. I've seen the marketing, like you mentioned, they really switched it to horror aspect of the story and i overall sort of dug it i think out of the three it's the best one i think it has the best ensemble work out of like all the three ensembles i think three films in there's a sense of comfort and control in terms of brana's performance like he really has it down there's this oddly old man charisma that comes with his portrayal of Perot, which is very entertaining um, and snarky. I do like Camille Cotton and Jamie Dornan. I do think some members of the ensemble are kind of either pushed to the side or not really given much to work with, which is a bit disappointing. I think it is, again, very predictable because it does follow the whole murder mystery genre tropes where you know, oh, it goes in and then you have the one person who's the misleading and then it all leads up to the grand reveal monologue at the end. So it it does follow the same beats as the other films. Although, you know, Branagh tries to incorporate uh, jump scares and uh, horror like eeriness to it, which works sometimes. I don't think it successfully works the entire film, but I will say it is admirable that Rana, you know, three films in is really trying to switch it up and his consistent uh, attempt at trying it is very respectable. And I do think it is entertaining uh, compared especially to the last film. I, I, I can't emphasize how much I did not like Death on the Nile. Overall, a good time. Okay. All right. Brendan Hodges, how about yourself? What's been your experience with Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot films? So I'm a massive Agatha Christie fan. I've read a high number of her novels, and I've been really wanting this series to be great. They feel like, in theory, they should have been made kind of just for me, because I should hypothetically kind of be the target audience, right? I'm kind of already in the bag. I love Christie. I love uh, murder mysteries. I love detective fiction. I love detective cinema. But for some reason, the way Brana constructed the series is as these kind of broad, four-quadrant, almost mini-blockbusters um, in a weird way. And hypothetically, that might work, but they're so glossy and bright and ugly, I, I just did not connect with either of them. I honestly did not think either of them were even fine I found both of them to just kind of be big eyesores 
and go on too long. And he never found a way to make the mystery element of it compelling. A lot of the acting was stiff in the first two, especially in Death on the Nile. So I was shocked not only by the approach revealed in the trailers, but by the movie A Hunting in Venice itself. Because the last thing I expected this movie to be is a slower, moody, kind of contemplative gothic thriller. Almost a gothic horror at times, as Gio was saying. I found that just a really novel approach, especially adapting a lesser known Agatha Christie story and even loosely at that um, for a Halloween party. And I like the idea of uh, Michael Green and Brana kind of making this their own. And you could really feel that this feels like a more specially made uh, handcrafted movie than the first two. You, you see this even in the first few opening images of the movie. You have all of these Orson Welles-style Dutch angles, uh, really extreme wide-angle lenses, deep-focused photography. And there's this opening montage that's just all these really extreme angles, like you're watching Wells, uh, something like Chimes at Midnight or even The Trial or parts of Citizen Kane. And I was like, ooh, he's cooking. He's trying to go for something in an interesting way in this one that he did not in the two previous. And for me, that carried most of the film. I don't think it's an amazing murder mystery. We can get into what I think it takes to be a good murder mystery later. I think it's a deceptively difficult genre to do in cinema. But I do think this is a reasonably good one. Um, you have a reasonable cast of suspects. Uh, and But mostly the film is interested as almost this kind of psychological drama on guilt and on death and on God and on trying to find peace uh, in, in this world. It's almost like a post-pandemic movie where people are locked in one space. It happens to be a really spooky castle type venue in, in, in Venice. And they're dealing with this kind of deathly situation they're in. It, a lot of it has to do with World War II and, all, and the demons from that time. I genuinely really liked this movie. I had a great time, and I, I don't think it's going to do as well as the first two. It is a decidedly uncommercial movie. My audience didn't quite know what to make of it. Um, but for me, for what I was hoping to get out of it, it, it really succeeded. Um, I love the mood. I love the gothic vibes. Perfect entry for me into the fall movie season. It's interesting that you say that about the uh, audience there, Brendan, and the predicted success of the film, or lack thereof, because I would think that because this is being marketed as a horror film, there might be some people who venture in to watch this who haven't watched the previous two, and thus might give it a shot in the arm as far as box office is concerned. But I do agree with you, while the aspects of horror are appreciated in the set design, in the cinematography, the sound work, everything about the overall presentation of this movie, I really love compared to the first two films. However, if you're walking into this hoping that you're going to have the living heebie-jeebie scared out of you, and while there are some, there are, there are maybe like two effective jump scares, I would argue. Overall, this movie is kind of lacking in terms of you know, giving you that same kind of visceral thrill that maybe like an A24 horror or one of the studio horror films would typically do if made on a, you know, 
if made well. Uh, so here, I think that the reason to watch this ultimately is for Brana, both on a performance level and on a directorial level. I don't really think anybody in the ensemble is giving like a tremendous performance or anything like that. It's fun to watch certain people in this, but nobody particularly stands out to me. I mean, we got like we have a little Belfast reunion between Jude Hill and Jamie Dornan playing father and son again, which is very, very nice to see. And there's also a interesting thematic uh, connection here, considering that in Belfast, uh, Dornan gives uh, uh, gives uh, Jude Hill the uh, copy of uh, of Halloween Party, and so. There's like a shared cinematic universe here in Brana's films, which I find quite amusing. Uh, but with all that said, I mean, I was pretty shocked. Like, this is one of my more shocking surprises of 2023. I went into this expecting to completely hate it, considering I didn't really like the last two. And to my surprise, I actually quite enjoyed this. I enjoyed it for all the reasons that you said, Brendan, and Gio, you as well. Um, it just has enough tweaks to the formula not in terms of the whodunit formula that's all very standard and to geo's point this screenplay is structured in a way that's very predictable in fact the major twist at the end of the movie i kind of hate to say it but i saw it coming uh pretty well in advance it was pretty obvious to me and there's a, a, a tell which I'm, I'm happy to get into if you guys want to discuss uh later on like where i knew specifically where the murderer would be revealed but um you know, other than that, it's really just all about the presentation and Brano's performance that won me over here. I really like that with each passing film, we're exploring new depths of the Hercule Poirot character, his worldview, and really digging deeper into his psyche. Um, that's very interesting to me because I think it allows Brana to deliver a performance across three films that is quite fascinating to watch. So overall, I like this one. Did I love it? Absolutely not. No, there's still some issues that I have with it. There are some very clunky lines within the screenplay. And I do think that even though, like, Brandon, to your point, like, even though I do love some of that, Orson Welles, you know, but you could even say German Expressionism, like, uh, sort of style that he's going for here and trying to give this a more gothic, eerie, off-kilter uh, type of vibe. There are certain points where I think he overdoes it maybe a little too much, and there's just some like weird edits here and there, but I love the ambition. I love the vision for this movie compared to the other two, and unlike Death on the Nile, which I thought was absolutely atrocious on a visual level, I, I couldn't understand how it's the same DP <laughs> across all three of these movies here, and... Yet, like, that movie, Death on the Nile, just looked so terrible to me. Uh, at least this one, you know, with the use of shadows, looks pretty damn good throughout. So, on the whole, yeah, I I'd consider myself a fan of A Haunting in Venice. I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the comparison of how the film visually looked from Death on the Nile to um, Haunting in Venice. Because I did not know it was the same cinematographer because when you watch death on the nile i vividly remember like all the horrendous green screenshots of him next to the pyramids and just the stuff from the boat it looked so fake and then compared to uh haunting in venice where the way they film all these tight spaces and even like large empty spaces to give you that like dreadful sense is just so like eons better comparatively to death on the nile 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I also think that generally uh, Brana seems much more comfortable in terms of making a compelling mystery, I think, in a more claustrophobic space, because the first two very much, as I said, try to have this blockbuster kind of four quadrant audience vibe. And because of that, there's a massive use of visual effects and they're garish. They're like hypersaturated. They remind me the closest I could make the comparison is maybe to like Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies and how like every color is like very oversaturated. Um, It's just kind of, I don't like an eye. So it's just very ugly to me, but here this weirdly feels like one of the most personal movies he's made in a while or the most himself. One of his movies has looked in a while Brana's style infamously uses a lot of Dutch angles. You, you see that in everything from his earlier work to Shakespeare stuff to Thor. And this just feels really close to his heart in a way the first two didn't. And he does give a much more internal psychological performance that's haunted. I mean, it's in the title, but most of the characters, but especially Poirot, they're haunted in this movie. They're contemplating the demons of, of the past and their situation. And uh, yes, it's true that the murder mystery elements are routine. I mean, if it, one of the joys of Agatha Christie is you can kind of expect a winding different structure for the first 80, 90 percent. And then you have Poirot wrapping it all up at the end. And one of the joys of Christie, though, is how her books change in genre. Very frequently, some are almost like a serial killer story. Some might be kind of a, a locked room thriller, etc. And this is the first time we've really seen Brana tackle the latter type of situation completely. And that's just part of what I found so compelling here. And the way he visualizes it, I just thought was staggering. On an audiovisual level, this is probably the most pleasing eye-popping studio movie we've had in years, certainly one of, and and I just can't get over how good this movie looks. And I think how well this movie works for you is going to depend a lot on how well you get on the vibe it sets versus how well you're trying to follow the plot itself. Because as you guys have said, the plot is not amazing, but is is the plot is kind of a a clothesline on which to hang everything else the movie's doing is where I think it's the, the most successful. Yeah, I think those opening shots in particular of Venice in the daylight before we get to this Anansa scene where all the shadows creep in. I mean, some of them are absolutely beautiful and set the mood of the story uh, pretty well early on. I also like that Hercule Poirot is, you know, in retirement and is enjoying not taking cases. Or is he? I mean, that's what calls into question, right? He's the type of person that you know, you pretty much look at what he does for a living and think to yourself, he's not really living unless if he's working on a case, really. Uh, yes, he's got his pastries and everything that he gets delivered to him twice a day. But I don't think that the guy is truly enjoying 
this period in his life, but it's because he doesn't want to come face to face anymore with the horrors of these murders. He's experienced enough death and trauma in his life that he is actively seeking to get away uh, from coming to face to face with it again, which I think is a very, very interesting exploration of the character. And we start diving into the supernatural element of his belief in the existence of God and ghosts and spirits and all of this. I was like, man, this is the kind of depth of character that I feel like Death on the Nile was trying to get at a little bit more. But instead, we ended up getting an origin story for his mustache. (laughs) You know, like this, I thought, was just so much more powerful and allowed for uh, Brana then to give a performance that I I would argue amongst the three is probably my favorite that he's done so far. Yeah, I I agree. I think he's genuinely very good here. I also generally think the cast, while they're not all perfectly used, I think they generally do a pretty good job because in a murder mystery, you need a few things to happen from the cast of characters. The first thing is you need them all to be very distinct in tone and affect. Um, You need them to be separate in your mind. So as the viewer, the reader, as you're kind of going through the list of suspects, you can easily and quickly identify, oh, it's this guy, this is his backstory, this is his deal. And this movie does a very good job of that. Um, you never can confuse the different characters, but not only that, it, they easily remind you of, oh, this guy used to be a cop. Uh, this character um, is sort of the pained uh, mother. This character is the pain medium, etc. You can kind of quickly sift through that information. And I do wish they gave each actor kind of like a monologue moment almost to deepen them. But I was fascinated by not just for Poirot, but how all the characters, or I should say most of them are either haunted by the uh, horrors of World War II or they're haunted by death, literally or figuratively. They're trying to deal with their sense of mortality. They're trying to deal with how to cope with this amount of death in the world, which is, I say, the movie almost metaphorically is a post-pandemic movie because it's like we're coming out of this time and we're all trying to make sense of the death and carnage and trauma we've collectively experienced up to this point. So it made sense to me that all these characters led by Poirot were sort of dealing with all these things in an interesting way. I'm curious, how did you guys think that the cast of characters here operated as like compelling suspects for the murder. Matt, it sounds like you figured out maybe pretty early what was going on, but still, I'm just curious. Yeah, I, man, you know, I think the one area of this movie where it does lose me a bit is when Hercule Poirot starts doing these individual interviews with each member of the cast. And I'm going to push back just a little bit on something that you said there, Brendan. I, I do think that in those isolated scenes the movie does then allow each one of these members of the ensemble to deliver a monologue of sorts to fill in some sort of backstory about why they're there and what their connection is to uh kelly riley's character and her daughter who mysteriously uh died about a year ago did she jump was she pushed was she murdered you know and so everybody's kind of like filling in these gaps with these individual seeds with perot um, but yet, 
because of what Giovanni was saying earlier, it's kind of like standard. This is how you do to who done it. He does individual interviews and then he kind of pieces everything together at the end. Usually those there's maybe one more murder or one more twist thrown in there. Uh, to kind of break things up. And of course, that does happen with uh, Jamie Dornan's character. It just like started to feel very routine to me, and the pacing of the movie started to slow down. And in regards to the Jamie Dornan death, as soon as Kelly Riley basically said, let's lock him in this room, and it's soundproof, and here's the one key, I was like, nope, red flag, absolutely not. And I, I knew right then and there that she was in on it to some degree or another. So the reveal at the end of the movie that it was her who intentionally poisoned her daughter in almost like a phantom thread sort of way to make her ill and sick so that she wouldn't leave her mother to go off and be with um, this guy who I God, I can't remember uh, who played uh, who played him. Was it? Uh, no, I, I don't remember. Anyway, it was so funny because when when um, the boyfriend actually does show up for the first time, I actually thought it was Taron Egerton for a brief second. <laughs> he looks so much like. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait a minute. What? I was like, I know this guy. But no, apparently we don't. Um, so all of this like started to fall into place. It all made sense to me. I I, I don't think I was as interested in any of that. I don't think I was as interested in. These individual characters and the murder and why Kelly Riley does it. None of that was of interest to me. What was of interest was the stuff that you were talking about, Brendan, with regards to this theme of how these characters are confronting death, have dealt with death, and how they are going to face death themselves uh, and what that means you know, beyond this world, essentially, in, in whether or not you believe in there being a spiritual world beyond our time on this earth. So that was the stuff that was more of interest to me. And as a result, uh, everything else kind of, I don't know, just felt routine and by the numbers. Well, you say kind of routine and by the numbers. I say cozy vibes. Now. That, that, no, that's <laughs> totally fair. And, but like, the thing with that, though, is this. I think that going back to the audience again, right? You have two types of audiences who are coming in to see this film. You have those who are familiar with the previous two movies and know that this is a whodunit. And those cozy vibes are there, and I think they're going to be satisfied. But then, I, at least in my screening last night, there was definitely a younger audience who I think were there for the horror vibes. Mm-hmm. And yes, I, de- I definitely could feel that there was this mixed reaction of sorts amongst the audience. Nobody clapped when the movie was over. There was a chuckle or two here or there sometimes when Hercule Poirot would have a funny one-liner or, you know, like he would start getting his mojo back, so to speak, with getting excited about solving the case. Uh, That got a few laughs from people, but otherwise very, very little audience engagement overall. Well, it's a as I said in my kind of opening, it's a weirdly uncommercial movie. I was shocked at how just slow and moody and, you know, internalized and ruminative it is. The opening of the movie is very slow. You just have this kind of montage of images. The It's also a very quiet movie. A Hilder's score is terrific, but a lot of this movie is very quiet. This isn't a film that is trying very hard to constantly superficially thrill you. It's not trying to, uh, I think, contort itself too hard into being a a proper straight gothic horror movie. 
I've read some reviews where people accuse it of like, oh, it's trying too hard to be horror. And I'm like, I don't I don't see that. It most of this movie is people in rooms talking about how sad they are. But when I say cozy vibes, one of the pleasures of an Agatha Christie adaptation, for those who love her stuff anyway, is very much the way it goes through the familiar beats and then does something different with it. And I would say that this movie is far more successful in taking the familiar architecture of an Agatha Christie story and twisting it in a somewhat different direction in tone, style, uh, theme, and just overall effect. Now, you brought up some of the particulars with the plot, so I'll get into that. And I'm very curious how you guys felt about this particular element. I was let down by the reveal of who it was, that it was the mom, as you said, Matt, because yeah. to me, this whole movie is not about what she was dealing with. Her reveal is almost all about not being able to let go of her daughter. It's all about her need to control. And I didn't see how that thematic idea or emotional idea related to the shared trauma of the other characters, yeah. um, to the it, it just felt like it was out of left field, not on a plot level, but more importantly on a thematic one. That was that's my big criticism of the movie. Yeah, I I agree. I I was I didn't the whole reveal. I was like, oh okay, because again, like I mentioned earlier, we're certain genre expectations you know they do the thing midway through where it's oh this person might be the killer and they have the motive and they have all this lined up and then it tries to, like a trick you and you're like oh it's this person and then halfway through it's like oh it's not this person and, and it's kind of the whole like tina fey thing which i kind of was like okay maybe and then once that's out of the way so early i'm like dude there's got to be so much left in this movie like it's definitely gonna be this person at this point, like Matt said, you know, after the whole key thing. And I was like, okay. And then you just start thinking about it. And it, it, it does come out of not really left field. It's just, again, you know, it kind of just tucks it away for the grand monologue. So when Perot is just breaking down every little thing, you're like, oh, wow. Okay. But to me, I was just sitting there. I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Well, they also do this thing too, where he accuses certain people thinking either he hasn't figured out or he's intentionally kind of rattling them to see if they'll like let slip any additional information. He never does that with Kelly Riley in this movie. So the movie is deliberately avoiding her to make the audience forget about her. And that was like another tell to me that it had to be her because everyone else was getting their moment of... Hercule pointing the finger at them, even Tina Fey, who's supposedly his friend for yeah. so, so many years. And so once the film does that, it's like you can't return back to that. So it kind of crosses them off the list to a degree. Speaking of Kelly Riley, as someone who watches Yellowstone, <laughs> I need something to give her like some role for her to just not involve her just crying all the time. Like I need I need something different. Like I need Kelly Riley to get something really good because in this movie I was, I didn't even know she was in it. Like I did again, this movie was so low on my radar of like knowing about it that when I saw it, I was like, Oh, Camille Cotton. Oh, Kelly Riley. Oh, okay. You know? And I just watched her and I was like, you're kind of, I thought she was the most underserved out of everyone in the ensemble. what do you guys think of uh, Jude Hill here? This is his uh, follow-up performance from Belfast. He's working with, uh, Kenneth Branagh again. Oh, well, actually, uh, he's had other roles in between, but like this is his first major role, I would argue. So 
Um, I I gotta say, like, I actually thought he was pretty good here. You know, still still a cute kid at times, but like this whole idea of like the boy taking care of his father versus the other way around. I, I actually thought that was pretty uh, interesting uh, to play with here, and. The, the, I don't know if your if your audiences laughed at the very end of the movie when he was like going off, but it was almost like uh, the movie was comically making him out to be just wiser than his years than what was believable. But at the same time, I, I thought he was pretty good here. Yeah, I, I, did I agree. Really, I really did like Jude Hill. I think he does like convey the sense of maturity for someone beyond his years especially because the whole thing is like you said matt he's taking care of his dad his dad is suffering with post-traumatic stress from the war um and so he's like he's got to make sure he's getting his pills on time and he's making sure that his anxiety isn't you know spiking through the roof and there's a whole interesting sequence where he's calming him down when jamie dornan like snaps and he gets in a fight with the 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 one person we can't remember, the Taron Edgerton, uh, <laughs> the doppelganger. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was it honestly, Jude Hill was probably one of my more favorite performances in the movie, and I was not expecting the whole. Again, there's an aspect of the story towards the end that does involve him a bunch to the whole mystery of it all. So I I did enjoy that. I, I will say though, I wish Jamie Dornan. Got a little, a little bit more, a little, like he was good, but I felt like Jude Hill was doing everything. I was like, if we just balance it out a little bit. And then once, you know, the locked door happens, I was like, okay, all right, that's a wrap. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I do wish Jamie Dornan had a little bit more to do here. Michelle Yeoh doesn't have that much to do either, but she at least makes a pretty large, significant impact with her screen time. I feel like with Jamie Dornan, they were struggling a little bit um, with how to present his character, especially considering it did seem like more of a showcase for Jude Hill, which I completely loved because it's such a different performance than what he gave in Belfast, which, you know, that's exciting to me because that just tells me, oh, this isn't some one-note child performer who doesn't know how to act. And, you know, he was plucked off the street and Canabrana gave him this role in this movie that he was perfect for. No, he's showing some range and some versatility here. And I think that's very exciting for the future in terms of what he will go on to do next. So I was way more riveted by what he was doing than what Dornan was doing. No offense to Dornan, who, I, you know, has definitely turned a corner for me in recent years. I do think he still struggles sometimes to pick projects that I uh, get excited about. But overall, I mean, like he's a he's a pretty solid actor when he wants to be. Oh, so I was going to say you weren't excited for Heart of Stone, uh, the hit Netflix film. <laughs> Jesus Christ, oh, man. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the thing with Jamie Dornan here is that he is playing like an archetype. Mm -hmm. And one thing I thought the movie did well is when you're trying to parse out, OK, who could have possibly done it. This movie did a better job than the first two in creating a somewhat credible list of suspects. I do think it overtips the hat about some of what might be going on, for sure. But in his case, the fact that he could be violent without realizing, I thought was an interesting angle. And he plays that convincingly. You believe that he could have been violent without necessarily realizing he would be doing that. And what I really enjoyed about uh, Jude Hill, it would have been so easy to overplay the fact this is like a, a too smart, almost creepy little kid. And he doesn't. 
he grounds it. It feels like a very human performance. And obviously, they need to push the empathy and the emotional uh, tenor uh, with him to balance out his dad. So their dynamic will make sense. And I thought that was actually quite, you know, thoughtfully calibrated and performed by both actors as kind of a duo, knowing how each performance would offset the other. The more of a mess Jamie Dornan's doctor character is, the more we'll see the utility and, and purpose behind how Jude Hill's kid is acting, right? They, they go together as kind of a pair. Um, so I really appreciated that. I also agree that Kelly Riley was kind of underserved. Um, she's given very rote, uh, kind of traumatic or traumatized mom material to go off here. Uh, stuff we've seen, I think, too much of lately in movies, especially on television. It's just kind of become a very routine depiction of a mother grieving that I was hoping would be more interesting, especially when it was revealed how she played into the the killing. One thing I'll say, though, as routine as this movie was plot-wise, the half the joy of these movies for me is seeing how Poirot will solve them. You know, it's the Columbo thing. Where in Columbo, you know who the the uh, killer is in the opening scenes of the, the every episode. So the joy is just seeing Columbo circle the killer like a shark, right? And in this case, I really, unlike you, Matt, I did enjoy him talking to each suspect. I did enjoy him getting closer because the added element here that we haven't talked about yet is that he has all these bonkers hallucinations. (laughs) He's hearing, you know, a little girl singing. He's seeing people who aren't there. He's hearing all of this elaborate, uh, creepy, creaky sound design that may or may not be there, right? We're very much in his head in the movie, even leaves it somewhat ambiguous how much of that is real and how much isn't. He was drugged, it turns out, which I think most of us may maybe picked up on early in the film. But nonetheless, it plays some games with that. And I honestly thought that was fun to see Poirot genuinely stirred by this. And the style evokes that too. There's that uh, camera rig that they created that goes on his uh, body. That So it's like as he's walking, the camera's shaking with him because it's attached to him. And it just does a great job of putting you inside his mind, inside his point of view. So as he's experiencing all these things, we're right there with him on a style and subjective level. And I just really got a kick out of that stuff. All that, All those elements were really effective for me. Um, so I, I enjoy that piece of this a lot. No, and that's totally fair. I get that. I think on a visual, like aesthetic level, the incorporation of the horror genre is something that works pretty well. What, what did you guys think, though, of like the times where it was obvious that they were trying to go for some jump scares? Because I read a lot about how a lot of the jump scares that uh, were performed in this movie were actually surprises to the actors on set to get genuine reactions out of them. Nobody knew other than Brana and the crew. So I was wondering if those had a similar effect on you. Like there's the one moment with the chandelier dropping mid monologue for Brana. I thought that one was pretty good, but I can't really think of any others that really got me on a, on a, you know, on a visceral level. Otherwise for the most part, I thought they were just pretty uh, substandard. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think most of them don't really hit for me. The chandelier one was 
the good one. But I think rest of the time, it I wouldn't say super telegraphed, but the way the scenes were building, I was like, oh, it's a horror movie now. There's going to be a jump scare. And then when it does happen, I'm like, all right, yeah. I think depending on how loud your theater system is, it could have a, a better desired effect on you. Yeah, I think that's true. What I will say, though, is that I think the purpose of the jump scares here was not primarily to always make the audience jump. I'll explain. For me, some of them got me, some of them didn't. I do think Matt the Chandelier is very, very good. It might be the best one. What I found to be more effective is how the jump scares kind of are a mood device. The jump scares put you in the aura or the atmosphere of, again, gothic horror or gothic suspense, etc. And because of that, I think it adds something to the overall movie that goes beyond whether or not it made you jump or not. Because some of them made me, most of them didn't, you know, most of them didn't. But I, I appreciated that it was there to create a kind of locked in uh, pressure cooker uh, ghoulish space for the audience to be inside of. So I enjoyed what it, what those things added to the movie um, in general. And not just the jump scares, but there's also, as I say, the hallucinations and things like that where we're not sure. Like, there's that scene with the little girl where he sees the little girl. And I, what I love about that is you genuinely don't know at first oh, is this a girl from the party earlier that night? The, the the movie, I think, does a reasonably good job making you think this is kind of a real person based on the conversation. And then it turns out she wasn't there. There's a lot of little things the movie does that I think add a lot to the movie's vibe than anything else. And if, if and when I revisit A Haunting in Venice, it's not going to be to revisit the plot. It's going to just be to inhabit this zone because as well as Agatha Christie stuff, I'm a big admirer of, you know, Gothic fiction um, from the 19th century, Gothic cinema. The Spiral Staircase is a great favorite of mine. Um, Sid Mac's old film. You just don't get movies that actually embrace a properly Gothic atmosphere very much anymore and play on the tropes, I think, in fun ways within a Gothic kind of atmosphere gothic genre anymore it's just not done that often like we had crimson peak a number of years ago uh jane Eyre, you know a few years ago however long that was now but this movie we it's, we don't get this on a studio level very often so while we're speaking about the horror elements for me that they all kind of got, went into this more successful effect that it had on me but again mileage will vary how much you're kind of in the demographic for wanting that stuff. Because to your point, I don't know if a horror audience will get that visceral thrill, but the gothic horror audience is probably gonna walk out pretty happy. Yeah, I can see that for sure. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. 
Now it's time to tell theirs. All right. Um, I have a couple of other things I want to mention here, but I guess we'll just save them for final thoughts in case if uh, either one of you two don't mention them. Uh, so why don't we do that? Why don't we get over to final thoughts here? Giovanni, we can start off with you. Is there anything that we didn't mention that you want to bring up or something you want to reiterate? I will mention, yeah, Brendan mentioned it earlier, uh, Hilder Gunnantier does the score. And I, I had no idea. I was like, wow, this is a pretty good score. And I was like, sounds something like uh, I something akin to a Hilder score. And then like when the I was sitting through the credits and that popped up, I was like, wow, what are the odds? I gotta say, I uh, you know I because both of you said you liked the score. I didn't think the score was anything great. I thought it was just there. Maybe as a standalone listen, it would sound better to me. But Hilder's got a style of writing her scores during production. And not like watching the like the final edit or the assembly cut and then scoring to that. And I do think that that sometimes works and sometimes it doesn't. And here, I just found the score to be quite muted and used very sparingly. And I didn't think it had the effect that I wanted it to have ultimately when all of a sudden done. Let's not let's not get it. I'm not going to be like this one of the best scores of the year or nothing. I just thought it was like it was a good like accompanying piece to like the mood of the film oh yeah i think as a mood setter it definitely stands out and helps to film on that level but as a memorable piece of music that sticks out in my mind i've already forgotten about it yeah and then i would say i i really just mainly it's just kenneth brana i think he's just the glue that keeps all these movies where they they turn out fine bad all right He's the connective tissue that makes everything work. And I think his confidence three films in gives me an assurance that I could sit through like another three of these. I don't know why. Like I could just watch like three more. Like there's another one and it's in a different setting with a different ensemble. I could just be like, yeah, sure. I could spend like a 2 p.m. showing on like a Sunday going to watch next Perot murder and just watching Branna like you know do funny accent and twirling his mustache and it, I mentioned because I on uh, my review for the site you know Branna's whole career definitely shifted post like the 80s and 90s and then 2000s he's just this journeyman like studio for hire director in terms of like the directing aspect of his career and it's you know we always talk about in Hollywood now a lot of uh, studios they take these indie filmmakers and then they you know the one for you one for me type motto that's been in the industry for so long and that doesn't really happen but it seems like Branna you know after Belfast like the whole world is now kind of his where he finally got an Oscar he can really do whatever he wants I, I remember he was going to work on a, B, a Bee Gees uh, biopic before he dropped out of it and instead he's just like I'm going to go back and do more Perot movies because I just really enjoy it. And you can get a sense of that personal gratification. Like when you watch it, you can tell that like he's kind of having a good time doing it. And I, I enjoy that. Like, I think that's what makes me honestly enjoy these movies is that like I can tell Branna's like, I actually really dig this. I'm into it. I could be doing anything else, but like I'm just going to make more Perot movies. So you know what? Give me like another three. That's fine. You know what needs to happen now at this point? Like, I need to see it happen. What? I need Ryan Johnson to cast Kenneth Branagh in, in, in a Knives Out 
yes. movie. Make him like the plumber role. Like he's the he's like in the first Knives Out, he's the one that gets killed. Something along those lines, uh, because I know we're, we're never going to get Hercule Poirot interacting oh, yeah. with Benoit Blanc, but it would be really, really interesting. And I bring this up, too, because I was wondering heading into Haunting in Venice how my enjoyment of it would turn out considering how recent Glass Onion was and how much those two Knives Out films from Johnson have, I think, really now shifted perception of the whodunit genre. And I do think it's the type of movie that most general audiences now want to see. Uh, Poker Face also, to a certain degree, has also kind of helped with that, I think, a little bit as uh, as well. So I was wondering, is this going to feel too stuffy? Is this going to feel old-fashioned? Is it going to feel dull by comparison? And to a certain degree, you can argue the answer is yes. But that doesn't mean that it's bad, necessarily. I do think, though, that... What Johnson has done with the whodunit genre with those films in particular has brought them into a new era. And it's still quintessentially like Agatha Christie, even though they're not adaptations of her work, they take direct inspiration uh, from her work. And so anyway, I was just thinking a lot about that while watching this movie in regards to also how the audience would respond, seeing as how those movies are so beloved and so um, critically acclaimed now. Like, is there a place for more Hercule Poirot films at this point? That's the question. Like, has the space for the whodunit genre been completely overtaken? Um, and I think the answer following Haunting in Venice is no. I think there's room for for both. Well, I think the big difference, Matt, is a question of sincerity. The Knives Out movies, and I am a big fan of both, especially the first one, they are very much up to their own tricks. They are very meta movies. They're very, quote unquote, postmodern. You know, they're very ironic. They're very self-reflexive. And yes, there's this emotional core both try to have. Um, I think somewhat successfully, somewhat not successfully, but they are not really pure straight face murder mystery movies for better or worse. They're doing other stuff. I actually think they're very bad movies as murder mysteries. They are very fun, very good movies. And it's very fun to watch the characters and the actors perform their roles in those movies. But they really don't function as what we would think of as a proper murder mystery. The first one does a little bit. But remember, almost half the first movie, we don't even necessarily think there's a murderer. It plays more like a longer episode of Columbo. So I think that is a key differentiator. The Poirot movies, at least hypothetically, because as we all have said, none of us are big fans of the first two. Hypothetically, the difference is that these will be sincere. These can be throwbacky to what we love about the genre but still give us new stories, new ways to tell them. And remember, the first Murder on the Orient Express movie, uh, or I should say the first of these movies, which is Murder on the Orient Express, that made more money than either of the Knives Out movies did. And it, this is 2017, but it made a crazy amount of money, and Death on the Nile underperformed, but it was released post-pandemic, theaters went back to full strength, blah, blah, blah. So I, I do think that's an important differentiator between what Ryan Johnson has created and what Brana is trying to create with these. And so they both can have room in the marketplace, but if he keeps making them as slow and contemplative as this, are they going to reach a big global audience? Maybe not. But I do think that difference is worth pointing out. 
I'll just say this too. Give me Hercule Poirot movies over Artemis Fowl and God knows whatever else he's been doing uh, within this stage of his career because, man, I, to Gio's point earlier, being like the studio for hire director, it just didn't suit him. I like Belfast. I don't love Belfast. I'm glad that he got to tell like that story because clearly it meant a lot to him. I'm glad he's an Academy Award winner now at this point. I don't care like who he beat or what he wanted for. I'm just glad that he got that moment of recognition from his peers. I like Kenneth Branagh and I want to see him do well. And I think within these movies, within this genre, it does play to his strengths and it does allow for him to also then make enough tweaks with each film to explore different cinematic tricks, different genres. And so I wouldn't mind seeing more in the end. Gio, do you have any other final thoughts? Uh, not really. Um, uh, my grandmother would love this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, other than that, no. I I think we've really covered the bases on a uh, haunting in Venice. There isn't like too much that's relevatory or anything that's like game changing, like a, a Knives Out in this, to where it's like we have to go minute detail to detail. Yeah, that's true. Brendan, uh, Brendan, what about you? I almost called you Brendan Fraser for a moment there. Brendan, <laughs> <laughs> final thoughts. <laughs> hey, compare me to the best. Um, no, uh, yeah, I, I have two other quick thoughts. One is I just wanted to comment kind of briefly and concisely on how challenging the murder mystery genre is to do in film because you have to think that you only have a limited space of time to develop a cast of suspects and to your point earlier, Matt, where you flagged who the killer was early, you need to set up the killer without revealing the killer. But you have so little space to do that for each character because of the running time. And this movie in particular is under two hours. I appreciated how fleet this movie was. It doesn't waste time. But because of this, it's just so hard to actually put the viewer in a position of, oh, who did it? Because it's really hard to outline that many motivations that many uh, emotionalities of each th of the different characters, where they're at, where th what their goals are, um, what their uh, what they would gain from the the, the death of the um, victim. And there's actually, if you look at like lists of the best murder mysteries, there's very few. You'd think there's a lot, but in the history of cinema, there's really not that many. Um, you've got the Thin Man movies. Clouseau has kind of a lesser known one. The murder lives at like one, two, three. It, it, that's really good. Um, but there's very, very few really good ones. Peter Usinov's are okay. But because of that, I guess I think of this genre a bit differently than the average person. Because when I'm going to go see a murder mystery as a film, I'm not expecting the airtight plotting I would expect from an Agatha Christie novel or even a miniseries that's a really good murder mystery miniseries. Because there's just more room to develop everything that needs to be developed. In that respect, I thought A Haunting in Venice is genuinely one of the best murder mysteries we've had in years for all it offers is a film. Um, and I really want to be clear about that because it, that's different from me saying, oh, it's, a, again, an amazing murder mystery plot. It's not, but it gives me everything I would want from seeing a murder mystery movie in 2023 where it's bringing in style and character and a decent mystery, good vibes, all those things. The other thing I wanted to mention 
is we've talked a lot about how great Brana's direction is. One thing we haven't talked about too much is how different or how varied his filmmaking actually is in the film. I mean, he is very choice. And when he goes to handheld in the movie, I really love the seance scene, which we haven't talked about, um, which is really brilliantly directed. He has this camera rig that's like fastened to Michelle Yeoh as she's spinning around the room. Um, and it, there's all these different creative shots and visuals in the movie that I either hadn't seen before or I hadn't seen done this way. So just on a cinematic set piece level or, or just a visual level, um, I said this earlier and I really don't think it's hyperbole. This is one of the best studio movies in terms of visuals we have had in years, probably since the post-pandemic era has begun. And we'll talk about award stuff, but this genuinely is some of my best, my favorite cinematography of the year. And I was just blown away by how strongly directed this was and conceptualized top down and how he thought about, oh, this is a scene set in this area. What can I bring to it to give it something unique and something special? And we don't see that in Brana's other recent work, to your point, Matt. We just don't see that. And I really enjoyed a filmmaker who seemed enlivened by his material to be his best for it. And for me, that was really what made A Haunting in Venice so satisfying. I said this about Belfast. I'll say it again here, too. The only thing that hurts my appreciation of the cinematography in this movie is the editing. There are times where it's such an interesting composition. It's so well lit. And then it just cuts and doesn't allow my eyes to gaze upon what it is that they've actually done with that particular shot long enough. And that kind of depreciated my uh, appreciation of the cinematography here. So one element, though, that did stand out to me that I, I, I very much think is underrated in this movie and I'm not hearing enough people talk about is the production design. I think the Palazzo is freaking gorgeous. And I know that it's like shrouded in shadows for most of the movie to the point that it could be hard to make out a lot of the details. But like, for example, when they go into Alicia's bedroom, and you see like the paintings on the walls and, you know, there, there are some wide shots to just give you such an appreciation for the overall design and aesthetic of what they're going for with this movie. I think some of the production design work here is just absolutely extraordinary. And I wish that um, I, I, I do wish that, you know, I don't from an award standpoint, we'll get we'll get to it in a little bit here. But um, I, I do think it's going to go underappreciated this year. Let's just say that. This set out scene, like you were saying there, Brendan, I think Michelle Yeoh does a really good job in that moment where she becomes, quote unquote, possessed for a brief moment. Uh, but what really, really sold that moment for me, and I know some people have different split opinions on this. I just loved when the bird said, holy shit. <laughs> I freaking lost it in that moment. What, what, what did you all think of that? I, was, I thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah, I was into it. Yeah. I mean, the movie had, doesn't have that many moments like that. Most of the humor comes from Perot, but at the same time, I, I really, really enjoyed that brief uh, moment. I also want to call attention to, um, just go back to the production design uh, element again, I like the little bit with the cup on the edge of the table and how they brought that back at the very end of the movie. I thought that was a very, very nice touch. I did question if the use of the Dutch camera angle was being overused, maybe a little too much in this movie. I know that in like recent years, he's just deployed it more and more and more, but 
I, I I don't know. Do, like, do you guys get a sense that like he's overdoing it at this point? Actually, Matt, you're gonna laugh at this, but I thought it could have been used more. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe for the type of story this is, right? In terms of you know, obviously things have to keep the audience on edge, and things are slightly off, and there's a sense of unease to you know what's happening, and so the Dutch camera angle subconsciously does that to you. But I don't know. Like there are certain times, and like I said, I kind of attribute this to the editing of the film and how it's put together, shot to shot to shot. Sometimes it just feels like a cut to a shot that is flat going over to a Dutch camera angle just can sometimes be jarring to me. No, I I think that's absolutely fair. And that's my issue as well. We're just going kind of the opposite direction and how to fix it. Um, I, I thought that whenever the movie cuts back to more conventional lensing, conventional composition... I was always a little disappointed <laughs> because so much of this movie is so beautiful. And I mean, the Orson Welles comparison is genuinely sincere. There's compositions in this that are really just gorgeous in how they distort space for a certain effect. They impacted me a great deal. Um, but then you cut to kind of a regular medium shot, medium lens um, not really doing anything particularly interesting. And you're like, oh, man, I I would have loved it if it could have kept up a more consistency shot to shot because I think that's what we're both reacting to, the lack of consistency. But I also appreciated how quickly the movie was edited and how it kind of got on with it. Yes, the overall runtime of this movie is very much appreciated, as you yeah. were saying earlier, for sure. Um, and also, too, I will say, as for as much as I had an issue with some of the edits in this movie, there is one extremely brilliant match cut of Hercule's uh, bodyguard pushing someone over a bridge and into the water. And then it cuts to Hercule Perot like on a boat and the splash of the water is so perfectly timed that I, I, I could just replay that match cut like over and over and over again. And it, it, it blows my mind. I, I've seen the movie twice now and both times I was like, oh, can we just rewind that, please? Please? <laughs> I thought that was so, so well done. Okay, and just one final thing I do want to bring up here. At the end of the movie, when Hercule Poirot is face-to-face with Kelly Riley on the ledge and the ghost of her daughter seemingly appears pulls her backwards, and plunges her to her death. Do we think that that happens for real? Do you think that Kelly Riley accidentally slips? Or do you think she willingly throws herself from the ledge knowing that because Hercule has found her out, her life is essentially over? What What, what is everyone's interpretation of this ending? Uh, I, I think she jumped. I personally think she jumped because like the gig was up. Geo does not believe in ghosts confirmed. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a skeptic. <laughs> what about you, Brennan? Yeah, I agree with Geo, but with the caveat that I love how the movie formally designs that sequence where we've had all these previous scenes that were shown from Poirot's kind of drugged, narcotized point of view where it seems like they're going one way and then they're not, right? We get that early scene with the water in the bathroom where he thinks he turns it off and then it turned out he didn't, etc. And it, it, I, This scene operates by similar rules. And I like that the movie doesn't show us the alternate. 
I love that it leaves it somewhat ambiguous to add to that spooky vibe. So I think that if nothing else, it operates metaphorically as proving ghosts are real, whether what, what how we define real might be up for grabs. But that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, yeah. I, I And I, I agree. I mean, like, my own personal feelings aside here, I honestly... I go back and forth whether or not if I believe in ghosts and spirits and things of that nature. I don't I don't know. I have times where I think so. And then there are times where I just it's out, so out of mind. I don't even think about it. Uh, and that's why that's what I love about the ending, too, is I love that it can be interpreted any which way you want to interpret it as far as your own personal beliefs. And then that ties into Perot's beliefs and so on and so forth. So it's all tied together in a way that I think, uh, once again, highlights the best aspects of this movie. Okay, uh, well, that'll pretty much do it here for our thoughts on A Haunting in Venice. Uh, for a grade out of 10, uh, if memory serves me correctly, I am pretty sure I gave Murder on the Orient Express a 5 out of 10. And Lord knows what I gave Death on the Nile. I... I <laughs> definitely lower than that. Um, I, I think it was like maybe maybe a four or a three, something along those lines. So I would rank this higher. I'm going with a six. I had some issues, but overall, uh, this rejuvenated my faith in Brana making more of these should he choose to do so. And I hope he does choose to do so. Um, I think that he could go in some very interesting directions uh, with this character and with this genre should he... Uh, should he make more? So, yeah, 6 out of 10 for me. Gio, what about you? In my review, I gave it a 7 out of 10. I don't know if I want to lower it once, but you know, for the sake of being different, I'm going to give it, like, the lightest of 7s. Okay. Brendan? Yeah, I would say a very strong, loving 7. If I revisit it, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if I would move it up to an 8 on the MVP scale. Because, gosh, I, I know I keep going on about it, but I was gobsmacked, delighted by the audiovisual approach to this thing. And look, I, like Gio says, I would be happy if they all, if they all look this good, if Brana just keeps on making these things. But for now, I'll just give it a very loving seven. All right. And as far as any Oscar potential is concerned here, I'm going to go with no, because the previous two didn't get nominated for anything. I know the first film came close to, produ to a production design nomination, possibly, but maybe that'll change here. Maybe this one will be the one to get in for production design. But I, I, I don't know. I, I think mostly it wouldn't because, as was said before, I think so much of the set design is covered in shadow, which... Uh, depletes some of the appreciation that some might have for it. So I think it kind of works against itself in that regard. But what do you guys think? I would also say none. Yeah, I don't think it's going to get a nomination. But um, I bet for those of you who are interested in end of year ballots and how we all would submit things, I would be surprised if I don't nominate this for cinematography. Uh, production design is competitive. Cinematography is competitive this year, but... I think there's an off shot that, you know, if it's going to get anything production designer cinematography, because if you look on Twitter, the cinematography is what's gotten the most love. Um, and I've seen quite a few tweets by major critics, major culture writers who are just like, holy shit, like, why does this movie look so amazing? Um, 
So it's possible on a very off, off, off chance the Academy feels the same way. But we shall see. But realistically, probably not. Okie dokie. Brendan Hodges, tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Metaplex Movies, or you can just search Brendan Hodges on Twitter, Letterboxd, and now Blue Sky and Threads and everywhere else with all these social media platforms bumping up. Giovanni Lago? You can find me on Twitter at the Giovanni Lago. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of A Haunting in Venice here on the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.